You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Thank you, Bianca. Good morning. Okay. Um, Thank you. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Before we turn there, if you're new, I'll introduce myself. My name is Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens Church. Thank you for uh, joining us for worship. Um, We love Jesus, and we love you, and we've been praying for you, and so we're glad that you're here. If you're watching online, maybe you're doing that for the first time, or you've been doing that for a long time, thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we turn our attention to the passage and um, to the sermon, really, I want to uh, ask of you that you would join me in praying for uh, a family uh, here at our church at Citizens. Last Friday, uh, early in the morning, Stephen Roundtree went to be with Jesus, and we had his funeral here yesterday. He was 43 years old. Uh, Stephen uh, and his family have been part of our church for uh, several years. Uh, before we were a campus of the Village Church even, he was part of the Village and came here uh, when we launched the campus, and they've been here ever since. Uh, and Stephen uh, fought uh, brain cancer for the last few years, and many of you have been praying for him. We prayed for him a few times, uh, even as a church, uh, at our nights of worship. And we were praying, especially these last few months, just for a, a miracle. And um, last Friday, his battle with, with cancer ended. Uh, and Stephen, if you knew him, you know this about him. He was an incredible man. Uh, he loved people well. Uh, and what Stephen believed, um, which makes honoring him uh, and remembering him so rich, uh, but he believed that Uh, God was in control over all of his life, Um, and he believed that the sicker he got, the more confidence he had, not just in God, but that God would be the one and the only one to determine when he would take his last breath. And um, I also know that because of Stephen's trust in Jesus and his hope in Jesus, that death is not the end of his story. Uh, His inheritance in Christ is resurrection and eternity in a kingdom that is free of cancer and free of pain, and free of tears, and full of joy, and full of Jesus. Stephen was a wonderful, godly man. I think of uh, James 1.13 when I think of him, and James 1.13 summarizes the last few years of his life really well. Uh, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And our brother stood the test, he honored Jesus, he lived well, and he died with a good name, and I am going to miss him, and I am going to see him again. Um, Would you just spend some time praying uh, for his family, Uh, his parents, uh, his wife Danielle, uh, he has three children, his daughter's eight, he has two twin boys who are four, just want to spend some time as a church praying for them. So you pray where you are, and then I'll lead us in just a moment. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Stephen. Thank you for a life well lived. I thank you that because of uh, your grace in the gospel of your son, that Stephen's greatest problem was solved in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, God, for those who are here and who are grieving, uh, grieving with hope, but grieving nonetheless, I pray, especially for his mom and dad, for his sister. Pray for his wife, Danielle, God. Pray for his daughter, for his sons, 
just that you would comfort them. Uh, Lord, that, that they would continue to believe uh, that, God, you are big enough for the questions that come in tragedy and suffering, that they would continue to believe uh, like Stephen believed, God, that you are worth worshiping even in the worst of life. And that these truths that mark the life of a Christian would just be near and dear to them, God. That uh, death is not the final word, but Jesus, you get the final word. That the end is not a, a sad tragedy, but the end is a glorious happily ever after in a kingdom that has no need for the sun because the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. So we trust in you, God. We believe in you. We need you. And just pray for your comforting presence to be with us, but especially with the Roundtree family today, tomorrow, in the days ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead. We love you. Amen. Proverbs chapter 1, I'm going to try and uh, take the turn into the sermon now. We're in a series on wisdom, and we have been for several months now, uh, and we will be for several months from here. Um, wisdom, if you remember, is living in God's world, God's way. Wisdom has a posture, it's low. Uh, we grow wise as we are humble and open-handed. Uh, wisdom has a pace, it's slow. We grow wise over time, it's not in an instant, uh, but it's over time. Uh, wisdom has a person. Wisdom is a person. It's Jesus. We grow wise in relationship with him as we're changed by his love and changed uh, into his wise likeness. And uh, really, we spent all of last spring building that kind of foundation uh, for the wisdom series. And now we're at a place where we're turning our attention to just different topics that the wisdom books of the Old Testament and really all of the Bible covers. And so what that's sounded like is that's, that's what that will sound like from here is we'll do a week on wisdom and money and a week on wisdom and emotions and we'll do uh, some more on wisdom and suffering. What we've really done for several weeks is just stay under a large topic which is wisdom and family. And that meant a couple of weeks on family of origin, and that means that meant a couple of weeks on um, family or wisdom and, and marriage. Uh, and then last week, Adam Griffin came and he started what will be at least two, maybe three weeks on wisdom and parenting. So that's where we'll give our time this morning is wisdom and parenting. And if, if you've uh, been here for any length of time, you, you know something about me. You know that I'm a dad, and you know that I'm a dad because I talk about my kids all the time. Um, most of that is because I adore them. Some of that is just because I'm around them all the time. My life is mostly two places. It's mostly at church or it's mostly at home. And so all of my illustrations are either going to come from my kids or they're going to come from you. And I don't know that you want me sharing your stories as much as they want me sharing their stories. And so um, I love them. I love being a dad. I, I um, just adore them with everything I have. And underneath that, I feel this even more deeply than I feel this as a pastor. As a pastor, I just care about this and about you and about being faithful in this space. I care more uh, about that as a dad. I just, at the depth of my soul, I just want to, this probably isn't the way to say this, um, but I just want to do this right. Um, I, I want to parent the right way. I want to be good to my kids. I want to be good for my kids. And maybe a better language than right and wrong is I just want to be faithful as a parent. Um, I, I listened to a podcast that Sandra Bullock was on a few months ago. It's a hard turn. 
Um, but she's one of my favorites. I think she really is one of the best. Um, remember the movie Speed? Like back in the mid to late 90s? Um, that was, I didn't know this until I listened to the podcast, but that was her big break. Like that's what launched her career. So think about how good she is. She launched her career driving a bus around for two hours while Keanu Reeves played the same character he plays in every movie he's in, right? She's that good. And so she's being interviewed on this podcast and, and the other people on the podcast, they're other famous people and they're just gushing over her accomplishments and, you know, the, the, the awards that she's won and the, you know, box office hits that she's had. And then they asked her a series of questions they said this, look, you know, what's next for you? You can do drama, you can do comedy. Uh, what's the thing you want to do? What's the next thing that you have to have? She's, they said it this way, what's the hundred foot wave you wanna go out and get? And she immediately said, my kids, my kids. She said, I don't want to chase anything that makes me miss them. I don't want to chase anything. I don't want to accomplish anything. Nothing matters to me beyond this moment as much as my children matter to me. And that resonated deeply with me. It, it put words to something that I feel. Like I don't want to, on the negative side, I don't want to mess this up. On the, I mean, to say it positively, I don't want to miss them. I want to be faithful in this. And that is a um, common parental sentiment that I hear, at, especially in a room like this. I know not all of us have kids, but those of you that do, you want to be faithful. Now, some parents are, are tragically disconnected from their kids and tragically apathetic towards their kids, but, but most parents, and I think maybe even all that are here, you share that kind of depth of desire. I, I want to do this right. And that's true whether your kids are on the way. That's true whether your kids have kids of their own. In every single stage or age of parenting, there's this shared sentiment that I want to I be faithful in this. I want to help, not hurt. I want to steward well. I want to uh, parent my kids in a way that they believe that they don't just belong to me, but they belong to God. And it's an incredibly relevant conversation for our church. At Citizens Church, we call all of our next-gen ministry, um, 18, or we call all of our a ministry to 18 and under next-gen ministry. And our next-gen ministry has several hundred humans involved in it. So just in our student ministry, there's about 180 that are regularly involved in that ministry just on a Sunday, not including those who aren't here, which a lot aren't here every Sunday, but on any given Sunday, we have at or over 200 in our preschool ministry, and we have at or over 200 in our elementary ministry. And so there's several hundred children that are here. And behind every single one of those children is a parent. And according to the Bible, and affirmed by the research, the most important spiritual influence in the life of those several hundred children are their parents. Not only do we have a lot of parents here, we have a growing number of grandparents here at Citizens. Like I, I know that if you're here and you're a grandparent, you probably feel like you're the only one. There are at least five more of you, I promise. I, and I, I think it's a lot more than that actually. And of those of you who are here and just the conversations I've had with you, you care deeply about this, about parenting your children as they have children and then even being a faithful grandparent to your children. We have many faithful saints here who don't have children of their own, and that lands, a sermon like this lands in, in a tender place or a difficult place or a place of grief, and yet even still, you are serving this church as faithful spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and spiritual sisters and spiritual brothers, and you care. 
You care about this conversation. You care about discipling the next generation. We have many young married people here who don't have kids but will one day have kids soon. All of that. I said all of that to say that I feel personally as a dad who really wants to do this well. And then I feel pastorally as a pastor of a church that's filled with children just how important this is. I want to be faithful. I want to play my part in equipping us to be faithful in this. And so because of that press, as I think about talking about parenting, my impulse, uh, my knee jerk, where I have spent so much time wasting time thinking is about all of the um, issues that we need to tackle, like all of the skills that we need to collectively acquire so that we can disciple children well or be faithful parents or faithful spiritual parents. And so the the impulse is is things like, um, you know, all of the different topics, like how do we handle discipline? And we need to spend a ton of time on how to handle discipline. Proverbs 22, 15, it says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. And all of God's parents said, but the rod of discipline drives it far from them. And what does that mean? How do you discipline kids? And how does that change as they, as they age? And that's a worthwhile question to consider. Or how about technology? Like what wisdom do we need about how to help children have a healthy relationship with the screens that surround them because screens surround them? Goodness, how do we talk to children about how the values of the world clash with the values of the kingdom of God? Like, I, I know every generation has felt this, but my kids are growing up in a different world than the one I grew up with. You feel that? Like, there are challenges they have that I just didn't have. Now, my kids will never know what it's like to have to carry around a Walkman if they want to listen to music. That was hard for us. Like, you have to clean the CD when it starts skipping. That took time. But the questions, goodness, like the questions that, my kids will ask just because of the commercial that ran while we were watching a football game. It's just challenging. It's complex, and, and there's wisdom that's needed for all of that. I mean, I think of things like how do you handle dating? How about school choice for those who have that kind of privilege even? Uh, for those with older children, there's a myriad of questions you're probably asking that I don't even know to ask yet because my kids are still relatively young. You know, how do I uh, engage with an adult child who's gotten really, really busy? How do I cultivate a good relationship with my kid's spouse? And so for me, it feels like, gosh, there's so much to learn. Like there's a whole uh, list of downloaded podcasts on the podcast on my phone, and it's all around things I know I need to listen to to try to get skills to learn how to address all of these myriad of different issues, right? There's so many uh, things that it feels like you need to address, and the impulse is that there's so much to learn and maybe figure out. Don't, Don't you feel that? As a parent, as somebody who's around kids, as somebody whose kids have kids, it's like there's so many answers that I need, right? All of that's important. To be honest, I don't know how much of that we're actually going to get to in this series. All of it's worthy of our time. It's not the starting place for faithful parenting. There is something that is more important than all of that, and I want to give the rest of our time to answering that. When it comes to raising children, there's something that's more important. It's the hardest part of parenting, just to warn you, and yet it is so good for us to hear because it brings us over and over again to Jesus just to encourage you. I want to state it simply and then we'll spend the rest of our time unpacking it. Good parenting is about being and becoming a godly person. Good parenting is mostly, it's chiefly, it is first and foremost about being 
and becoming a godly person. Uh, In Proverbs, it's wise words, but it's wise words that are substantiated by the wise witness of your life because, friends, children are mostly influenced not by the answers we've learned to give. They're mostly influenced by the character we have because that's what we parent them out of. Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 says this, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Uh, We talked about this in the weeks that we spent on family of origin. The whole book of Proverbs is set within the parent-child relationship. One way to see it is the whole context is a conversation between mom and dad and the child that they're trying to raise in wisdom. And so my son, that phrase, is repeated over 20 times. There's a dozen speeches, either from dad or from mom. So it's much more than this, and there are a lot of different angles from which you can rightly approach the book. But one of them is to say the whole book is a parenting tool. The whole book can can serve you in whatever relationship you have as a parent or a spiritual parent to a child. The book can serve you as, as ways to equip you to share wisdom with them. And there's full of things to teach and truth to speak. But here's what it assumes. Wisdom is being spoken and learned from parents, from a man or woman, mom or dad, who are themselves becoming wise. Hear your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. The implication is that everything we're about to say is what we ourselves are trying to embody. Remember what's true about wisdom. It's a drum that we've beat over and over again, that wisdom is not about information. Wisdom is about being changed by what we know. It's being lowered and being humbled and becoming wise people in relationship with the person of wisdom, Jesus. And so if Proverbs is parents teaching wisdom to their kids, largely, and wisdom is less about information and more about character, then good parenting is mostly about being and becoming godly people. It's wise words that children can hear and a wise witness that children can see with their eyes as they watch wise parents as they watch the wise adults in their life. I think about a proverb that we talked about a few times, and it's not a parenting proverb, but I think of it often in the context of parenting. It's Proverbs 26, 9. It says this, like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Somebody needs to put that on a coffee cup. It's such a wise verse. Here's the idea. Uh, A drunk guy stumbles into a field falls because he's drunk, catches himself, but he lands on a thorn, and a thorn goes into his hand. What does that accomplish? Nothing. He doesn't learn anything. He's too drunk to learn. He wakes up the next morning. He's super hungover. His hand really hurts, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't even remember the night before. So what effect does that event have? Nothing. It's empty, except it hurts. So there's no lesson, there's only pain. And that's what it's like according to the proverb. That's what it's like to hear truth from a foolish person. A proverb is a true saying. A proverb is a wise saying. But in the mouth of a fool, it doesn't mean anything. If it accomplishes anything at all, it only wounds because the truth of the proverb gets lost in the falsehood of the fool's character. You know what that's like, right? Maybe you've been on the receiving side of that. Anyone ever said something to you? And it was true. Uh, Maybe it was even a Bible verse. 
but because of the way it was said, or, or probably more so because of the distance and the difference and the dissonance between the wise words from their mouth and the foolish witness of their life, it didn't mean anything to you. If anything, it just hurt. It was like a thorn. No lesson, only pain. Okay, there's a principle that I can't shake that's behind that, but I think about a lot as a dad. What we say and the impact our words have is inseparably connected to who we are. Inseparably connected to who we are. And so as parents, we can have all the right rules around technology, and we can have the most sophisticated reason for doing school the way that we do. We can fund everything in a, in a, in a faithful way that our kids need. We can move close to our adult children so that we can be a helping hand. We can know all the right things to say, and we can answer all the questions in the right way. But if all of it is not connected to wise, Christ-like character, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The words fall flat. The proverb lands like a thorn into the hand of a drunkard. The great hope that we have for our kids is that they become like Jesus. Amen? And what they need from any parent or parent figure or spiritual parent is they need help cultivating a heart that loves and follows Jesus. And you cannot give what you don't possess. You can't help cultivate a heart that loves and follows Jesus if you do not have one yourself, my friend. Good parenting is about being and becoming godly people because it's out of that character that we mostly shape those that are around us, including our children. Okay, here's a response that would make sense. This is what I'm feeling right now in this moment, and if you followed me, maybe you feel something similar, and it would sound like this. That's really discouraging. Like Jamin, that's a, that's a huge bummer. Um, because what's true for me and, and maybe true for you, I'm not where I should be. Not just as a parent, just as a human, I'm not where I should be. Not only am I not godly like I should be, but it's actually my children who see the worst of my ungodliness. It's, it's my children who see the messiest parts of, of who I am. And so they don't see a wise witness as much as they should. And so if you're like me, maybe you already feel just a bit buried in shame over, parent, over your parenting. And if all of this rides on how godly I am, then I'm doing far worse than I thought. Friend, oh, lean in. Right there is the good news. Right in that tension, that feeling, that holding up, that it really does matter that we are people of Christ-like character and the people it matters most to are the people that we're closest to. And if you're a parent, the people you're closest to are your kids. That reality combined with the reality that we are still being changed, that we are still full of sin, that we are still broken, that we are still in need of the help of the Spirit of God to become who He wants to make us, right there. But holding those two realities together, you know what links them together? The gospel of Jesus. Goodness. I've said it before, we'll say it again. Your children don't need you to be Jesus, they need you to need Jesus. Because they do. I cannot, look right at me, I cannot tell you the number of adults that I have pastored or pastor right now who are thinking about their parents as adults, and they are not waiting for their parents to be perfect. They are simply waiting for their parents to acknowledge what's wrong, simply waiting for their parents to acknowledge that the things that weren't faithful, the things that weren't good, the things that were messy. Not, not to heap shame, not to heap blame, not to 
you know, compound guilt, but simply to, for parents to own failure instead of blame shifting, for parents to acknowledge their need for Jesus so that children and parents can find their uh, unity and can find their shared hope in a shared need for Jesus. So good parenting is being and becoming godly people. It's not being and becoming perfect people. And what makes godly people godly? The grace of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. The gospel applied to all of our failures and foolishness. And so part of that godly example for all parents, for all people, is modeling what it looks like to receive grace. For the parents in the room, one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is a front row seat to your sanctification. They already have a front row seat to your failures. They already have a front row seat to the weaknesses. And so if, if we bear witness to the wisdom that is growing in us as we turn from foolishness and name them to that, it welcomes them into something that they also can relate to as broken, failed, sinful humans. So I want to name two things that mark the life of godly people. Uh, and it's especially important that these things mark the parent-child relationship for the parents who are being and becoming godly people. Uh, they handle faith with honesty and they handle words carefully. I want to unpack that. I want to unpack those two. But as we do, just know where this is all headed is, is what I just said, so that we can see our need for Jesus. So godly people, they handle faith honestly, and they handle words carefully. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, godly parents handle faith honestly. It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust the Lord. Uh, when does that stop? Like, when do we get to the point where we're wise enough to lean on us? Never. That was easy. You could have said it out loud. It doesn't happen. Like, consider Proverbs 9.9. Give instruction to a wise man. It doesn't say give instruction to a foolish man. Somebody who's already wise, what do they need? More wisdom. He will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Uh, what does somebody who's righteous need? They need to learn more. Haven't they already learned? Isn't that what makes them righteous? Yes. And as a righteous person, they're still in need of learning. Um, Proverbs 18.2 is the opposite of that. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So the fool convinces themselves, I've learned all there is to learn. So I have achieved the place where I, need, I don't need to hear anymore. I only need to speak, and those around me need to hear what I have to say. If you remember about the fool, they assume the posture of teacher, whether they've been invited to or not, because they are so convinced that they've arrived, that they're done. The wise lean on the Lord. It says, in all their ways, acknowledge him. The word acknowledge means to know. It means that all of my life bears witness to the fact that I'm in a relationship with God. The word lean is to depend. It's to rest. It's to put confidence in. And so for everyone, this is true. For parents, your children need to see your faith. And they need to see an honest faith. Uh, they need to see that you don't trust in you. That your faith is not in you or what you can do, but that your faith is in the Lord. So being and becoming godly people begins with giving our trust, placing our faith in Jesus. Uh, my daughter asked me a couple months ago, she said, Dad, yes, you, hi, welcome. <laughs> Dad, uh, are you the boss of the church, she asked. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, well, at, you know, at school, the principal's the boss. I said, that's true. 
And she said, you know, at home, mom's the boss. I said, that's also true. She said, who's the, who's the boss at church? And I said, well, Jesus is. You know, elders lead in a way that, that represent Jesus, but, but whether the elders are there or not, Jesus is still building his church. He's still leading his church. Jesus is the head of the body of the church, Colossians 1.18 says. And he doesn't call himself boss. He calls himself Lord. It's a better word for him because he's Lord over the life of every believer. He's Lord over the church and Lord over the home and Lord over our decisions and Lord over our gifts uh, and Lord over our money. And that, friends, that's the only relationship with Jesus that exists. Um, there is no relationship with Jesus where he is just Savior, not Lord. He is the Savior King. He is both Lord and Savior, which means for all of us, for all of us who claim the name of Christ, what we have done is we have submitted our lives under the reign and rule of Jesus. And, and what limits are there to his reign? None. He's Lord over all of it. And what children need to see, especially from parents, is the kind of honest faith that trusts him, that leans on him, that knows that he is good, that he is wise, that he is best. So my kids don't need a dad who expresses his opinion. They need a dad who listens to the voice of his God in everything. The voice that wants to change me, that loves me, but wants to change me. And that voice extends to all of our life. One of the most confusing things, one of the most dishonest examples of faith that's out there um, is the compartmentalized faith. When faith is, is um, compartmentalized from the rest of life, uh, we always hear it in testimonies. Anytime we have a baptism service here, someone stands and says something like, you know, I grew up in a home that believed in God, but it wasn't really a part of our life. So the word was that God exists, but the witness was you don't have to act like he does. Uh, he's real, but that doesn't really change much for us. The proverb says, in all your ways acknowledge him. In, in all your ways. So um, all faith includes following Jesus in all of our life. Good parenting is being becoming godly people. And godly people evidence love for God in every part of life. In such a way that we can offer Jesus as the reason behind everything we do. He's Lord of the home. He's Lord of the church. He's Lord of mom and dad's marriage. He's Lord of the way we spend our money. He's Lord over the fun that we have and, 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 and the ways that dad fails and the hopes that we have for your life. He's Lord over all of it and I'm leaning on him in all of it. And that faith needs to be marked by the kind of honesty that doesn't compartmentalize. But there's another side of that. It's really important. It also needs to be marked by the kind of honesty that admits how difficult that is. It sounds like this. Child, Jesus is trustworthy with all of your life. And at times, I have a hard time trusting him. The opposite of a compartmentalized faith is not a perfect faith. The opposite of a compartmentalized faith is an honest faith. A faith that's, that's honest about how frail we are. A faith that's honest about how much idolatry still exists in us. It's like, I know Jesus is better. I know he's wise. I know he cares in love about every part of my life. And you know what, child? You are going to see dad fail to live up to that in a number of different ways. They're going to see gaps between what we say and what we do. And they need to know that this is part of being a sinful person that's still in process. And if we don't name that to them, it's not that they're not going to see it. It's that they're going to think that you don't. They're going to think that I don't. And so when we say, you know what, I see it, that gives us an opportunity to say, God sees it and loves still. Also, an honest faith sounds like this. It sounds like being honest if and when your faith feels pretty weak. I get a question often uh, from parents, and it's, hey, my kids have doubts about faith. What do I do? What do I tell them? And there's a lot of good answers to that. 
my first answer is to say, start by telling them about yours. Start by sharing what your doubts are. Hey, you know, mom and dad, I just have a hard time believing in God sometimes. I do too. You know, mom or dad, I have a hard time believing that God loves me sometimes. Yeah, every day of my life, I do too. You know, um, for me personally, even as a pastor, doubt's just part of my story and it's a part of my everyday life. There, there are times when I'm just driving around and I'm like, do I really believe all this? And doubt takes one of two forms. It's either doubting what God says about himself or doubting what God says about us. And I fall into both camps often. And some days, friends, all I've got is this, that I believe that Christ died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. And I've pushed all my chips in on that. And, and there's a lot I don't know, and there are seasons, and this is one of them, where there is much more mystery to me and much more confusion to me about following Jesus than there is clarity. But I believe in the king and his kingdom. I do. And even when that faith feels weak, I believe that God loves me no less because it's not the strength of faith, it's the object of faith, and a weak faith and a strong Jesus is more than enough. And friends, no one, including our children, can relate to having a perfect faith, but they can believe in a strong God, a God who's strong even if their faith is weak. So an honest faith, it's not compartmentalized, it's not perfect, it's honest, it leans on the Lord, it's honest about all the ways that we're imperfect. And good parents handle faith in the godly way, and the godly way is the honest way. We'll do one more. They handle words carefully. This is really important. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 12, verses 16 and 18. The vexation of a fool is known at once. We'll do a whole week on wisdom and emotions, and we'll spend a lot of time in this verse. The word vexation is basically something that happens here that just erupts out of you emotionally. You're irritated, you're aggravated, something like that. But the prudent ignores an insult. There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are like honeycomb, Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Thursday morning, I woke up and I had two texts on my phone. Uh, one was from a pastor in Nashville who I respect a ton, and he had sent an encouraging text to me and a few other pastor friends. The other text was from my dad, and he sent an encouraging text. And dad's text said this, I am very proud of you, Jamin. I hope you have a joyful day. You know which one meant more? The one from my dad. Uh, both were encouraging, but one had more weight to it, and it had more weight, not because of what the person accomplished, not because of uh, what the person was known for. One of those came from someone who's more famous than someone else, but the one that weighed more, the one that had more weight was the one from my dad, because that relationship between father and son comes with a weight to every word spoken. Like, think if it was different. Think if it was a negative text, not a positive one. Like, if the pastor from Nashville had sent, hey, I'm disappointed in you, that would have been really weird, right? <laughs> and I'd have been like, man, that's weird. And then I would have just unfollowed him from Twitter, and that would have been it, right? <laughs> but if it's, if it's my dad, and the text says, hey, I'm disappointed in you, that's different. I'd call him, and I'd be like, hey, what, can we talk about that? I'm not going to get you a Christmas present if you keep sending texts like that, right? <laughs> Because a parent's words hold unique weight in the life of their child, and because parents' words hold weight, their words require more care. Godly parents speak carefully to their children, regardless of how old their child is. 
So there's two kinds of words juxtaposed in the Proverbs that we read. There's words that hurt and there's words that help. The words that hurt are harsh words that stir up anger. The vexation of a fool is known at once. It means that something's, uh, there's some provocation, some irritation, and it comes out as irritated words. So words can hurt and words can wound, and, and parents need to be careful that the content of their words are not hurtful. So obviously it means no name-calling. It, it means build up, don't tear down. Like um, a good just standard to hold your speech to is don't speak to your kids in a way that you'd be angry if someone else spoke to them. That's obvious. It means something else, though. It also means being careful not just with what you say but how you say it. Because there's a way for parents to speak, and, and maybe the speech is okay, but the emotion surrounding what's said uh, means the kids don't hear what I say as much as they experience how I feel. And so when they experience for me like a vexation, they experience harshness, and the loudest thing I'm saying, whether I'm saying it or not, the loudest thing I'm saying is I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed, I'm stressed, I'm irritated, I don't have time for this. And then my children, they don't hear as much as what I say as much as they experience how I feel. And, and then they feel responsible for changing how dad feels, and that's not a child's responsibility. The moment we speak in a way that puts children in the place of having to manage our emotions, we become the child, expecting them to parent us, and that's a devastating weight to put on a child, regardless of their age. Hurtful words are also rash words. Rash words are like sword thrust, it says. It means they cut. They leave scars. The word rash means careless and thoughtless, words that don't think beyond the moment. They just open the mouth, and they just let words fly like arrows. An example would be a parent who compares their child to other children in a negative way. Like a parent who compares their child to their sibling. Like, why can't you just be more like your brother? Why can't you just be more like your sister? That cuts. That's rash. It's thoughtless. Because what it says is, you are too much like you and not enough like someone else. And goodness, the number of people who have run to all kinds of hurtful things trying to become like someone they wish their parents would love. Godly people who are godly parents, speak carefully to their kids. They speak words that help. Proverbs says the tongue of the wise brings healing. Gracious words are like honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. It means that parents can use their words. We all, as Christians, can use our words. But parents to children can use their words to increase the health of the whole person, both body and soul. And so what I say as a godly person with careful words is aimed at helping my child believe that they are loved just as they are, not perfect as they are, that's not true for anybody, but loved as they are, and helping them see who they can become in Jesus. And that includes correction, that includes encouragement, that includes confrontation at times, that includes speaking God's word to them from your mouth, reciting the Bible. There's something so powerful when your children hear God's word from your mouth. But hear me, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. And what that means is it means that what we say always, including what we say to our children, it says more about us than it does about them. And godly parents take that seriously and handle words carefully. Okay, that's just two examples. Um, because it is so important as parents, as people, as parents, to pay attention to the character of our heart and the Christ-likeness of our soul, handling faith honestly, handling words carefully, sitting in that, right? Do you know what I feel more than anything else? 
I just feel my lack of character. I feel my lack of godliness. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the tension again, trying to hold the two things together. Even as a pastor, I feel pulled towards compartmentalized faith or, or a faith that pretends to be doing better than I am. I fail often to be careful with my words and my emotions. This week, I had to say more than once, I was harsh. I'm sorry. And we could go on. There are more and more marks of good parenting from godly people. And the more we say, you know what would happen? The more we say, the more I would see and maybe you would see the ways that we fall short. The hope this morning is not to talk, friends, about parenting in a way that we see where we fall short. My hope is that we would see that our children most need us to be like Jesus. And that means as parents, as people, we most need Jesus. That's what we most need. I want to tease out just a few responses, then I'll pray. We're almost done. These are responses I think are faithful. If it's true that good parenting is being and becoming godly people, number one, it means I have to prioritize relationship with God. Part of good parenting is making time for me to be with Jesus and making time to do the things that help cultivate relationship with Jesus. That has to, look at me, that has to in some way make it onto your calendar which means there might be some things that are on there now that need to be removed from the calendar. I want to be careful because everyone's in a different season, but what it may mean is it may mean having children in less activities so that mom and dad have more space to do the things that bring change in them. Time in God's word, time with God's people, time living out God's mission. Anytime, know this, anytime as a parent you say yes to something that invites good and godly change in you and good and godly growth in you, you are doing something for your kids every time you do that because they don't need to be busy, they don't need to be entertained near as much as they need to be fathered and mothered by godly people. Two, I have to fight to believe if this is about being and becoming godly people, I have to fight to believe that God is a good parent to me. And that might be hard, depending on what earthly picture I had growing up. God is a perfect father. The Bible describes him in ways that we can say God nurtures like a mother. Like the way that I have the resources to speak carefully to my children, how do I do that? Because life is stressful and and I'm broken and sinful and I'm easily provocable. So how could I possibly have the resources to speak carefully, to speak in ways that help and not the ways that hurt because of the way that God speaks to me and because of the way that God speaks about me and says that I am loved and that I am his and he's given me his word that I can sit in and I can take to heart and what we have the promise right now that Jesus is our great high priest, he's our advocate and he intercedes at the right hand of the Father on our behalf and he is speaking gospel truths about us when we are at our best and when we are at our worst and I can draw from that relationship and say if he knows all of me and can still speak carefully and can still speak graciously to me then it's from that well that I can speak to my children and to all those around me. It means for all of us, I have to fight to believe God is a good parent to me, whether you have children or not. And maybe there have been parts of all of this that have been uniquely painful for you. God is a good parent to you. He loves you. He's with you. He wants good for you. And then the last one, maybe what it means, just a response I think is faithful is that maybe it means I need to have a conversation with my children. So for some, your kids are adults and they live in a different state, and that might mean a phone call. For some, that means your kids are young, they're toddlers, and it might even mean they're saying things they don't quite understand yet. But if what's true is it's true that 
Um, maybe I have not been honest about my faith in ways that I need to. Maybe I have not been careful with my words in ways that honor God. And there's the way to, to feel stuck between that kind of call for Christ-like character and then the reality of the ways that I fall short of that. And there's a way to just get buried in the shame of it. And then there's also a gospel way to run to the cross and in doing so, modeling something godly in front of your children. And that sounds like this, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Dad needs Jesus. Mom needs Jesus. That's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. That's on me. I repent before a holy God and I seek your forgiveness. If there was a trait to parenting, really a trait to Christian living, that I hope most marks us as a people, it's the trait of quick repentance. Because the path to godliness is the path of grace, and the path of grace includes these moments of honest confession before God, repentance to God, and repentance towards others. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. Again, God, the messenger feels far from the message. You're perfect. You're good, you're true, you're holy and righteous and right. And so, Lord, would you appropriate your words into the lives of my brothers and sisters, God? For the one who uh, feels so behind, for the one who feels so ill-equipped, for the one who feels so marked by failure, I pray that your grace would lift their face that there would be a kind of gospel confidence that says, without Jesus you can do nothing, but with Jesus you can become who he always intended you to be. We thank you for that, Lord. We need you. Would we be a people that are marked by a sober and serious pursuit of being transformed in the likeness of you, Jesus. Not in a legalistic way that's driven by fear or self-righteousness, but in a way that's hopeful and humble. Lord, as people, just as your sons and daughters, and then also for the many of us in the room who are parents wanting to do this well, not wanting to miss our kids, wanting to be faithful, wanting to stand with a clear conscience. There's so much that we can't control Oh, goodness, what a, what, a, uh, what a miss it would be for someone to hear that I'm saying that godly parenting can ensure godly children. It doesn't work like that. We don't have that kind of control. But oh, that we would hear the gospel-laden message and invitation that we can be welcomed in that we can stand on the confident identity that you have secured for us in your cross, King Jesus. And from that, we can be changed and those around us can benefit from that change. Lord, we love you. We need you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.